You're listening to the Bitcoin.com podcast. Our guest today is Alex, co-founder of Offshift. The opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by various guests or sponsors of the podcast are solely their own. They do not necessarily reflect those of the podcast host or the other people, entities, or organizations affiliated with the creation or production of the podcast. The guest and sponsor may consider their information reliable, but others involved in the creation or presentation of the podcast do not warrant the accuracy of guest or sponsor information, and it should not be relied upon. This episode is brought to you by Offshift. You shouldn't have to compromise your privacy to participate in DeFi. With Offshift, you don't have to. Offshift is pioneering private decentralized finance, or PriFi, with the world's first platform for private on-chain financial applications. With Offshift, users can shift back and forth between Offshift's XFT token and a wide array of synthetic assets in a single transaction without any slippage, excessive collateral requirements, or liquidation risk. And it's all fully private, decentralized, and on-chain. Take back control of your privacy and become a PriFi pioneer today. Learn more and read the yellow paper at offshift.io. I'm your host, Dustin Plantle. Join us as we dive into the world of economics, politics, tech, Bitcoin, and cryptocurrency. For even more crypto-related news, sign up at news.bitcoin.com or follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin.com. Now let's bring on our guest. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, Dustin. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. You know, what's interesting talking to people in this space is learning about how they first got interested in it. I mean, everyone has a story. And every story has a purpose. So walk me all the way back. Are you one of the original crypto OGs that in 2009 heard about this thing? Like, when did it begin for you? Um, wouldn't call myself an OG. Uh, maybe a decade or two out, we'll, we'll refer to ourselves that way. Um, you know, I, a few, when I was in university, I was interning at a financial services firm that worked with bold bracket banks and other top tier financial institutions that had distressed debt. Uh, not to stress that was in danger of becoming bad debt. So in other words, they were they had given out loans, issued debt, that the uh, recipients would be unable to repay or were in danger of being unable to repay. And this boutique firm would partner with and provide consultation services to the banks, uh, the bulge bracket banks, uh, in order to help them with the loan restructuring. Uh, and so they would analyze some sort of subsector that was experiencing macroeconomic conditions that were difficult for those companies, they'd become experts in that area. And then they would contact the bulge bracket banks because most of the loan information is actually public. And they would say, hey, these guys are going to have trouble repaying you and we're here to help. Uh, and they actually were very successful doing that. And so at the time when I was interning, um, the uh, oil was uh, going way down and there was a lot of trouble for these E&P companies, exploration and production companies. And so my job was to go through a Bluebird terminal and check out some of that loan data and determine which of these companies were going to be able, uh, unable to repay, right? So they were going to be, that would go put the bulge bracket banks under stress because they might not be able to receive all of the interest and principal that they had anticipated. So I reported within 60 seconds that none of the companies were going to be able to repay their debt. And I thought it was really easy work. And it was explained to me patiently and kindly, because there were very good people that were working there, that we were only looking for the companies that were going to be unable to repay the interest. In other words, to service the debt, because the principal was totally unpayable. Almost no company in the world could repay this principal. Um, and so I thought that was a bit strange. 
Um, and I had been studying finance in school. So I asked, you know, how do they repay the principal? And it was explained to me that they simply uh, just look for what's called a bridge loan. In other words, at the end of the loan term, the bank or the financial institution can elect to uh, allow them to repay the principal by issuing a new loan. And so I just went on with my with my work, but it, it kind of didn't sit well with me. And in fact, it didn't sit well with me at all because it kind of felt to me like the financial institutions literally owned most of the private interests and multinational corporations in the world uh, through debt financing. Um, and so I couldn't help but wonder, where does all this money come from? How do banks have so much money? And how do uh, corporations that are massively successful on a global scale uh, bringing in multi-billion dollar revenues annually or hundreds or tens of billions of uh, dollars in revenue annually, how are they unable to service their debts? How are they completely unable to repay the principal? And so it took me several more years before I kind of returned to that and circled back when I was done with school and was going to explore uh, economics and finance from, um, you know, in, a, in so many words, from the, the perspective of Austrian economics. And I sort of looked into that and discovered the way money works. And of course, the private banks only get their money from central banks and the central banks invented out of thin air. And I felt, okay, this system really doesn't resonate with me. What are the alternatives? And that naturally led into Bitcoin. For me, that was around 2017. But my initial exposure was several years earlier. Would have been nice to get to get in then. But um, it really started from this uh, area of monetary sensibility. And then it you know, sort of gravitated towards, over time, the alternatives, which, of course, is cryptocurrency. That's a fascinating entry point into it. So what I'm hearing, and, I, and by the way, this, this merely validates what myself and many others around the world have believed for a very long time, is that the current systems around the world have been designed to keep companies in debt, to keep people in debt. It actually encourages it. It encourages, I mean, one would argue, bad behavior that, I mean, isn't there a, a way in life where you're, what's the old saying? live like nobody else, so one day you can live like nobody else. Why is it that, from your opinion, that we've now set up a system that says, no, 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 we want to just keep giving you more debt and more debt? I mean, that can't be sustainable. Uh, yeah. Or is it? <laughs> it's certainly not. Uh, and I, I mean, obviously, Bitcoin was invented uh, for, for that purpose almost exclusively, at least in its initial stages, and that was really the advent of blockchain sought to solve that problem. Um I think, uh, you know, just on a, on a broader level, uh, to address the question, um, money is really just energy at the end of the day. Um, it's a way of directing uh, creative energy of human beings. And if you can control uh, wages or capital um, through debt, then you can sort of direct human energy and you can shape civilization very effectively. Fascinating. And by the way, that has been going on for thousands of years. That just didn't start 100 years ago or 30 years ago. I mean, since the beginning of, of mankind and womankind, there have been systems that say, no, just come here. We'll, we'll lend you a little bit more. We'll lend you a little bit more. But eventually, even those individuals come back and say, okay, you know, now repay the debt. So how do you repay the debt when you don't have the money? Oh, uh, well, uh, obviously, you, you have to take out more debt. <laughs> That's the concept. of Ah, so you're telling me, so you're saying is that you'll just go across the street <laughs> to another vendor. It goes, Hey, look, how much do they, how much are they asking you for? Is that, is that what this process is? Sort of. I mean, yeah, the, uh, at least in the, the um, situation where I was working, the bridge loan could function in one of two ways where you could go back to the exact same financial institution. And if they didn't like the way the business was operating, or if they don't like the decisions you're making or aren't confident you, then they won't renew that loan. 
and you're in a lot of risk or dangerous situation. Alternatively, you could, as you say, go across the street, go to other banks, go to other financial institutions. Uh, there are fewer and fewer all the time, and there's more and more M&A activity. Uh, but you could try to seek out another financial institution that will support you or, or does, um, you know, have a better vision for your, you know, for some loan duration where you would be able to pay interest. Fascinating. Now, and I'm starting to see more financial institutions around the world start to get into this ecosystem, either through the the owning of some sort of digital assets themselves or investing in the blockchain companies or even into certain DeFi uh, type products. So why do you think that is? Well, um, I, I think, I mean, for one, um, obviously there's, <laughs> there's a lot of risk uh, everyone feels about uh, fiat currency in general and where it's going, just, just as, as the memes say, or as the memes say, printing. Um, and so people are looking for stores of value at this point in time. Uh, and then, of course, built on top of that, I think really most of the innovation, what's at the forefront of the crypto space at this point is DeFi. Because DeFi is taking what Bitcoin invented, taking it really another step further. Whereas Bitcoin allows for the transaction, which is sending and receiving, and also storage of value or wealth in a decentralized format, DeFi allows users through, mostly through EVM, Ethereum virtual machine, and smart contract modules, allows individuals to engage in more sophisticated applications of finance. Uh, And again, while maintaining a decentralized format, so that's lending and borrowing, um, and uh, I mean, again, there are a lot of applications with NFTs. There are sophisticated derivatives instruments. You can uh, create and exchange insurance products. So all of that, I think, is where a huge amount of the innovation in crypto is, is moving. And I think even at the institutional level, although the investment might not mirror that, they might be dipping their toes in into Bitcoin, especially just because there's more liquidity at this point. Um, I think that's that's where a lot of the, the sort of um, uh, like the a lot of the. VC interests like the Andreessen Horowitz and people who are really uh, got in early and, and saw the dot-com boom coming are kind of directing their attention towards DeFi as well. Fascinating. Now, what is it about DeFi that, that helps to solve certain gaps or bridge certain gaps? Well, I, I mean, this is a really, this is a really important topic. Um, I, I, to, to me, really, there's, there's this really careful dance between money and credit that a lot of people aren't aware of. And there's a lot of um, maximalism in the space. Some Bitcoin maximalists, some Ethereum maximalists. I'm not going to argue with any of them. But people that think that you can just have some form of really sound money and will just resolve everything. And the reality is that money emerges organically, as per the theory of Ludwig von Mises and Austrian economics, that money emerges organically in a society because it facilitates more efficient exchange. Uh, it's superior to bartering, and it allows for economic prosperity to uh, advance dramatically, and then it broadens the diversity of labor and a number of other things, and technological innovation arises. And then on top of that, because humans don't have to um, dedicate as many resources to um, uh basic living, then you can see an emergence of art and culture and sport and these sorts of things. But of course, these evolutionary algorithms don't just stop. Uh, we, there's perpetual change and eventually it gets to a point where money, uh, for better or worse, is unable to uh, continue to advance society and produce more efficient transactions. And that's where it's originally served as a store value, a medium of exchange and a unit of account. But some of its qualities, the innate characteristics of money, which make it useful as a store of value, necessarily inhibit it from serving as a medium of exchange as well. 
And in the case of gold, it's portability, it's not as secure, it can be easily confiscated in some ways, and it's not perfectly divisible. And that manifests in how much energy is needed to be output, and that manifests in the form of a cost to transact it, to send it physically. And so eventually some form of credit, which is a symbolic instantiation of money, that is a receipt for it and is directly exchangeable for it in certain contexts and situations, in, in the case of what we've seen in the last hundred years, is a paper note and now something in digital form. But we use that in place of the money, what Ludwig von Mises referred to as fiduciary media, but it's really credit because it's more efficient to serve as a medium of exchange. And so that what that natural evolution that takes place is, is that the store value and the medium of exchange can no longer be um, supported by the same substance. Because again, the qualities of gold, which make it useful as a store of value, which make it scarce, and which make it a really strong money, necessarily make it less efficient as a medium of exchange. And a society becomes more advanced, and there are more sophisticated applications of finance, like again, loaning and uh, lending and borrowing and other capital efficient processes, which help society advance further, the gold cannot, the money cannot support that. And so in a similar, in a in like fashion, because the question was about Bitcoin and DeFi, Bitcoin has emerged as the most, probably, I'm not going to argue with anyone in the Bitcoin community here, as the most sound money um, that the world has ever seen. Um, but of course, again, Bitcoin, its qualities, in, particularly, uh, in particular the difficulty level and the SHA-256 hashing that make it scarce and that ensure its very stable disinflationary um, token emission model, uh, also prevent it from being a super efficient and super flexible medium of exchange. Uh, that's not to insult it. It's just to say it's a very strong and powerful money. And so that the energy that's required to transact Bitcoin manifests in the form of transaction fees, just the same way it costs money to transact gold, it costs money to transact Bitcoin. And so what we need is, of course, and what naturally emerges over the last three years is this DeFi landscape is these applications of decentralized finance, which allow people to engage in these sophisticated applications where you can lend and borrow, where you can earn interest and you can supply liquidity as well. And again, it's not, there's no fighting here. It's just, it's just a natural evolutionary process. And the reason that DeFi is so exciting or so special is because for the first time we have an opportunity to build a system of credit that is inherently decentralized. Because as we all know, what happens time and time again, since time immemorial really, is that once there's a sound money in place, there are systems of credit issuance which are centralized. And although they prevent bad acting on the outside, they enable and incentivize bad acting on the inside. And so we always have this collapse of society that's fueled by excess credit. So for the first time, we have this really sound money based in cryptography, Bitcoin, and supported by tremendous hash power, and we have this, you know, very flexible, efficient laminate of credit applications on top of it. But we don't have these centralized models where the credit applications, the DeFi applications can be abused. Uh, and that's a very profound opportunity that we have as human civilization to build a society that is sustainably able to continue advancing and growing. So, yeah, and it sounds like what it also brings is a new form of transparency and accountability credibility and many other aspects with it that it is solving i don't know let's call it internet 1.0 it's solving the internet 1.0 problems and creating the internet of value the internet of things now where do you think things are headed towards a tokenization aspect 
tokenization, well, certainly I think physical assets will be tokenized. Um, but I think almost, almost everything will be tokenized um, down the road. Um, <clears throat> and it's difficult for a lot of people to, to sort of visualize or to fathom that now and, and what, what tokenization really refers to. But it's just sort of like having a business and then building a website as an interface for that business and then shifting that website to an application on a, on a mobile phone. Most people in the beginning when there were applications on, whether it was your iPhone originally, but could be a Samsung Galaxy, whatever, thought, what's the point of having an application? I'll just go to the website. But you realize that it's a bit more efficient when you can plug into the application. It's a little bit easier to use. And tokenization is really just the next step of that because it allows for community involvement. It makes the relationship between the user and the organization or the business a little bit more intimate. So a token could represent, I mean, certainly what I think a lot of it's going is that tokens will be, uh, you know, manifesting the form of NFTs. In other words, they will just sort of be markers for a large amount of your data in the digital space. So you could be browsing the internet and you could have an NFT or you can have your data that's sort of tokenized, your search history, your preferences, your likes and things like this. Obviously, you'll need privacy in order for that to happen because otherwise that data is already owned by everyone else. Wow. Fascinating. And so uh, tell us about Offshift. What sort of problems are you looking to solve? Yeah. So Offshift um, is really the world's first PriFi project. Uh, So I'm glad that we got a little introduction there and talked a little about Bitcoin and DeFi because PriFi is just private decentralized finance. And so we're pioneering that PriFi standard. And we're, go, we're, we're also defining it and explaining why it's really important and what actually it is. Private decentralized finance. So there are really two big pieces there. And the really big pieces d- divided up, uh, it needs to be obviously entirely private. That means that anyone who transacts in DeFi applications can do so anonymously, no exceptions, no reservations. Second piece is it needs to be fully decentralized, obviously, as DeFi would entail. And then the third piece is that it needs to be fully on-chain. And there's a big conversation to be had there about why. But it needs to be on-chain on Ethereum. And of course, you know, it could be adapted to any other EVM, uh, Ethereum virtual machine uh, blockchain. Um, So we're building the first application. We believe it will be a PriFi ecosystem of compatible DeFi or PriFi applications where users can, again, engage these sophisticated financial applications while maintaining their privacy fully. Uh, which you cannot do in the DeFi landscape today. Interesting way of putting it. And I think you remember a couple of years back that Sony, uh, they had an issue. I don't know if it was a contractor or somebody had access to private information. I mean, think about this. What actors and actresses were getting paid, private scripts, movies that were in the system, a database. Oh, yeah. And it ended up not just costing them money, but it also cost the individuals where their data was sent around the world. There was also a major retailer a number of years ago uh, that the same thing, that private information got out. You know, when we, we, we're in a world where you are constantly being attacked. And if you are a corporation, you are continually being attacked. People are trying to get access to your data because they can use that data against you. Ransomware and many other aspects. What I'm finding is that this ecosystem that's being built is one that it's trying to fix the problems. It is trying to build a better system, a more sustainable system. So it sounds to me that is what PriFi is, that it is it is allowing people and companies this ability to protect their data. Yes. Um, I mean, that that is one of the big challenges about transitioning into the digital space. There are a lot of benefits, but again, privacy becomes an issue right away. 
because data or information is wealth. If you have information about something that's going to happen in a company or press release that they're going to do or a tweet that Elon Musk is about to publish, you can make a lot of money by placing especially a very um, highly leveraged position in one point or another in any investment. So again, if you have information about the way an individual or a group of individuals transacts, you can profile those individuals, understand the population demographics, uh, and you can benefit massively financially, but you can also, of course, engineer some of those behaviors uh, as well with predictive analytics. Uh, and so everyone's information, everyone's data, the, the data that they generate, which is a natural expression of their own selves, is um, a form of wealth. Um, it is, and, and money, again, money itself is just information. It's just a record of who owns what. And so having information about what people own and what they do uh, is just extracting wealth from them. So as we transition to this digital landscape and we see this opportunity to build a system of what is really sound credit on top of sound money, there's another issue which sort of finds its way into the mix, which is that people are having their wealth, their information systematically extracted when they're using these applications. And so privacy needs to enter the mix. In addition, there have also been a few studies, I couldn't, I couldn't name them offhand, but uh, a few instantiations where newly uh, minted Bitcoins from uh, newly mined Bitcoins, I should say, uh, were selling at premiums to those that previously existed. Because Bitcoin is pseudonymous by nature, and so you don't want to be receiving a Bitcoin that's been used for malicious activities or criminal activities. You don't want to be associated with that. There's some risk there, and so some newly mined Bitcoins could be sold out for premium because they're fresh, so to speak. They haven't touched anyone. So privacy also uh, confers an element of fungibility, which again is one of the principal characteristics of money. And when Monero developed their blockchain and their money, they would argue that their money is even sounder than Bitcoin because, I mean, you have some arguments there about the consensus, but in general, their, their units, the XMRs, are more fungible than Bitcoin because they're private. And so how do we learn more about Offshift? Uh, I, I recommend going you know, right to our website, offshift.io, uh, where you can learn about, uh, I mean, you can check through all of our documentation, certainly, and you can read our white paper and pitch deck. You can also find us on Twitter at uh, OffshiftXFT and on Discord. We have a dedicated Discord channel, which is definitely the best place to, to see us. Uh, we do monthly AMAs and private calls as well. So you can come in and, and sort of ask questions in person and submit questions as well. Uh, if you're looking to learn more about the project and contact the team directly. Um, and then um, if you're really technical and you're a developer and you want to get involved, especially if you're into zero knowledge proofs and that sort of thing, um, we've just released our yellow paper. Uh, and we also have a decentralized Git on uh, GitLab. So there's a lot of available information and documentation for people that are, are on the technical side as well. Thank you again for sharing your story on the Bitcoin.com podcast. Thank you. The opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by various guests or sponsors of the podcast are solely their own. They do not necessarily reflect those of the podcast host or the other people, entities, or organizations affiliated with the creation or production of the podcast. The guest and sponsor may consider their information reliable, but others involved in the creation or presentation of the podcast do not warrant the accuracy of guest or sponsor information, and it should not be relied upon. You've listened to another episode of the Bitcoin.com podcast. Subscribe at news.bitcoin.com, where your journey begins.